So in the first study, they basically had these participants, uh, you know, young 20s, kind of normal people, um, probably college age, uh, sleep for two weeks with just kind of monitoring sleep. And then they had them randomized to either a control group, which had glasses that didn't block blue light, but were like tinted, so they look like they did. Uh, and then glasses that did block blue light. And they measured sleep onset, so like what time they fell asleep. Uh, the idea being that if you're jet lagged and you can fall asleep earlier, you can recover some of that sleep debt. So that'd be a good thing. Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Are blue light blockers complete bullshit? You will find out today. What I will say is for all the hackers listening to this podcast and the people who are selling hacking products, if you are listening, if you are a quote-unquote biohacker, you may be frustrated with this podcast. You may be disappointed by the results of the study that we are going to review today because um, I will say that it, it, it disappointed me. Now, there are potentially some benefits inside of blue light blocking glasses, and we are going to get to those and give you how you can implement this or, or what is actually applicable for you to improve your sleep, improve your stress, improve eye strain, so on and so forth. Um, but from the from the, the overarching perspective from the bird's eye view, I can tell you this, they are not all that it's cracked up to be. And today we're going to teach you exactly why in this research roundup. So Brandon Roberts, our CSO, chief science officer, um, we both went over two different studies. One was going over blue light blockers and their efficacy for bettering your sleep, um, bettering your circadian rhythm, so on and so forth. We discussed chrononutrition along with that because chronotyping does become a factor in this study and in this topic. And then we dive into another sleep study, but this one on the effects of training training on sleep and how training affects your sleep, which kind of spins us into a conversation of the best time to train out of the day, how your nutrition should be set up to improve better sleep quality, nutrient timing, again, chrononutrition gets brought up, um, and much more. So we dove into quite a bit um, on this one, not just in the sleep department, but we also kind of ranted in different directions, and I think you guys are going to find a lot of application and practicality in that. And as always... Do me a huge favor. Take a screenshot of this episode if you enjoyed it. Post it on your Instagram story. Tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Brandon at BRob underscore 21. I'll link both those in the description of this podcast. Um, we want to thank you for listening and we want to share it on our story as well to help spread that message. It helps more than you can imagine. And without any further ado, let's get on to the research roundup. All right, November research review. Um, I'm excited about this one because the first one's kind of controversial. Um, I'm not gonna lie, I was kind of disappointed because I, I really, really, <laughs> I really want a hack to work so bad, <laughs> but um, I'm afraid that it's not what I felt it was gonna be. However, um, I'll, I'll let you dive into the study before I make any conclusions, um, but Brandon, welcome to the podcast once again. Why don't you break down the first study for us and then we can kind of just dive into it and I'll throw some questions your way. 
Yeah, so we have two studies, both focused on sleep. So we're hardcore into sleep in, in November for some reason. Um, but no, we, I picked this study because it's, it's relatively new, but I get a lot of questions about sleep, blue light glasses, melatonin, jet lag, pretty much anything sleep related. And I've never like formally done any research on sleep, but it's always been like a, in the back of my mind, I've wanted to do stuff. So I'm trying to figure out how I can do it now. Um, but part of doing research is understanding the background of it. So this is, you know, mutually beneficial to listeners and myself. Um, okay, so the first study is all about social jet lag. And social jet lag is the difference between when you wake up on like the weekends, for example, and the work week. So if you had high social jet lag, you would sleep in like two hours on the weekends. And, you know, say weekdays you wake up at seven, weekends you wake up at nine. Um, so that would be considered high or, you know, moderately high you had low social jet lag, which would kind of indicate that you weren't sleep deprived at all. You hadn't accumulated any sleep debt over the week from working or, you know, trying to get all your stuff done. Um, you'd wake up around the same time as you do on the work days. So again, wake up during the week at seven, maybe you wake up on the weekends at like 7.30 or something. Uh, so this study recruited people with high social jet lag. They had at least an hour and a half. And there are actually two studies within this um, overarching manuscript. Um, the first one is on blue light blocking glasses, which I covered on Instagram if you want to get into the nitty gritty of each study um, and kind of how I've accumulated the evidence um, that I've found. And the second part of this study was on sleeping with the curtains open, which is super practical. It's like, okay, you just don't shut your curtains at night. Um, and if you don't live in a city, that, that could work pretty well. Um, so in the first study, they basically had these participants, uh, you know, young 20s, kind of normal people, um, probably college age, uh, sleep for two weeks with just kind of monitoring sleep. And then they had them randomized to either a control group, which had glasses that didn't block blue light, but were like tinted, so they look like they did. Uh, and then glasses that did block blue light. And they measured sleep onset, so like what time they fell asleep. Uh, the idea being that if you're jet lagged and you can fall asleep earlier, you can recover some of that sleep debt. So that'd be a good thing. And then they also um, measured sleep time. So, you know, just like general amount of sleep. And they also measured something else called dim light melatonin onset. And I wanna kind of explain that before I get into the results because it's kind of neat because what happens is about two hours before you go to sleep, and this generally goes with um, light outside. Uh, so as it gets dark, as it gets dark, you start producing melatonin, um, and that makes you drowsy. So normal people say you go to bed at ten. Your DLMO, is the short name for it, our acronym, would start around eight p.m. So they kind of go hand in hand. So you would hope that you get sleepy, your DLMO is earlier. Um, and so on. So what the study basically found was after two weeks of wearing these blue light blocking glasses, uh, there was a trend for sleeping longer by about eh, 15 to 16, 17 minutes, somewhere there. Very like minuscule difference. 
uh, the variability was pretty high. I think it was like 30, the standard deviation was like 30 minutes. So that tells us um, there's a lot of, it depends on the person, maybe some of the other factors um, that we don't know about, like um, whether they played on their phones or things like that, uh, or maybe listening to music before bed. Um, so what they found was blue light glass blocking glasses slept about 17 minutes longer, which is good trend, but not, not significant. And they also, during the first week of wearing their glasses, fell asleep about 30 minutes before they usually would, which is good, right? That's how you're going to recover some of that sleep debt, assuming you wake up at the same time. Uh, but in the second week, that kind of got cut in half and was no longer significant. Kind of saying to me, um, you know, blue light glasses helped, but maybe we either adapted or um, something else happened where it was kind of just variance around the mean. Um, so the DLMO data, melatonin data, matched this sleep onset really, really well. Like it was like 30 minutes exactly and then about 15 minutes. So that says, well, physiologically, uh, there's something going on, um, but maybe this power, this study was a little underpowered or these people you know, didn't have a very large effect. So it's hard to find significant differences there. Um, but ultimately, the blue light blocking glasses didn't really do too much. So that's the first part of it, if you wanna go ahead. Yeah, I think that um, most people assume, one, that you would get longer than 10 to 15 minutes of sleep um, because of the blue light blocking glasses. And then I think people, the only argument I could see for people, and, and you kind of, I mean, they tested this with different variables too, but a lot of people argue, well, it's not about how long you get because of them. It's how deep the sleep is, right? And, and this kind of shows that that might not be the case either. How much efficacy or how much research is really, uh, like good research is put into the, like, the negative effects of blue light in the first place? Um, the reason I'm, I'm wondering is because obviously blue light blocker glasses might've been a little hyped up. Um, and, it's, and it's easy to do that with, grabbing this and then making a bunch of marketing saying like, Hey, it improved the duration of sleep. And now people can jump on that. They don't look into the finer details. Nobody's buying the glasses, but searching PubMed first. Um, so yeah. it, do you think that might've been the case with blue light? Like maybe blue light's not as big of a deal as some of these uh, companies or people marketed or is blue light something we actually do need to avoid? Um, so I would say whether we need to avoid it or not, you know, close to bed, it probably wouldn't hurt. But uh, there are a couple studies that actually like give blue light and then measure physiological measures. And that's how this all kind of came about is like people blocked off. It's a really, really cool like set of, series of experiments. Um, they blocked off different color spectrums until they figured out that blue light was the one that caused melatonin shifts um, and sleep problems. And, you know, mostly in like people with big time sleep issues with insomnia and things like that. Um, but it's, it's definitely a problem. We just don't know how to fix it exactly. Or if we need to fix it and how much that matters. Um, so there's a lot of kind of details people are still trying to work out um, for sure. I mean, my assumption was, I, I've always thought that like, we've adapted so i wouldn't be surprised if we adapted the blue light to an extent to where it's not as significant as it would be for somebody who is a caveman who first gets introduced to electricity you know like that might be a shock to the system 
Um, but no, that makes sense. I've also heard a claim from somebody who um, is in the blue light blocking industry uh, that talked about um, jet lag from travel and how using blue light blockers can help fight that for people who are traveling um, quite often. But I mean, would you say that this kind of breaks that down too and kind of defies that myth? Um, well, I think they're slightly different um, because so jet lag is the mismatch between your internal and external clocks, right? So the, like the sun clock and your you know, biological clock. Um, when you travel, I think there's other factors that play a role and I'm just not like, not sure that it's like easy as wearing blue light blocking glasses and it just fixing it. Um, I always tell my athletes or former athletes when they travel, um, there's going to be a first night effect. So the first night they get somewhere, they're going to probably sleep less. The quality is probably going to be crap. Um, so if you have a competition, right, that's a, a good rationale to go a day early. And most pro athletes go much, much earlier than that. Like the Olympic people are there for like a month before they, they compete so they can adapt to the environment. Um, but for normal people, you know, that's not really feasible. Uh, so, I mean it could have an effect, but I would lean towards no right now <laughs> for, for, um, flying too. Yeah, that makes sense. And even like, I know for me, if I'm doing, um, like speaking at a seminar event, I always try to get there one to two days early. Um, partially as selfishly, I just want more vacation time, but <laughs> yeah. the other part of me is like, I, I know that if I like land, cause I've had to do it where I land at after 6 PM and then I wake up the next day and I'm presenting and it's just, difficult right if i can wake up have basically the full day or like land at like six in the morning and then spend all day there get a good night's sleep and wake up and present it's so much easier mm -hmm. um before i ask any more questions i do have a couple more that i want to dive into this uh do you want to kind of finish breaking down what you have left of the study yeah so in the second part of the study um same kind of design where they uh they used two groups but they all they did was have people leave their curtains open. Um, and they wanted to see if this changed when they woke up, uh, DLMO or sleeping time. And it didn't literally do anything. Um, I was always kind of of the mindset that if you, cause our body's entrained to the sun, right? So we're very light based people. So if you open your like blinds, you get light, you know, you get out in the mornings, you get some light that would be beneficial, but at least in terms of sleep onset and melatonin, in this study, they didn't find anything. Uh, these were, I will caveat that and say, these people were already sleeping pretty good. Uh, and I think when we talk about sleep, the difference between sleeping five hours a night and trying to improve and sleeping even like six and a half hours a night and trying to improve is like huge, right? So if I'm going from seven hours a night to eight hours a night, I may not notice that. If I'm going from six to seven, I'm like, oh, okay, that's a big difference. So there's kind of like that threshold. Yeah, there's definitely a threshold effect. And they've done a couple of dose response studies, like had people um, sleep for four hours, six hours, and eight hours. Uh, it seems to be right around six hours is like less than six is kind of uh, risky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen, uh, I want to say, I don't know if it was after doing the podcast or if they broke it down on the podcast, because I've had a couple of people, I had Greg Potter on, and then I had 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm losing my train of thought on her name, but another sleep scientist on. Um, and, and if I remember correctly, it was kind of like if you get less than seven, you're kind of screwed. But the only benefit you're going to get above seven is like you got to sleep over nine. And then they saw like an improvement. <laughs> and, and, and I think the study was on high performance athletes, too. So we have to take that into consideration, you know, if they're, they're playing and training. So activity multiple times a day, they're busy, they're moving, they're traveling. Like, of course, more sleep is going to be better. Yeah. And with the athletes, that's, that's kind of my interpretation of the literature too. It's, it's, you need to recover because you've been working your butt off all day and yeah. not sit, sit in a chair, like, you know, we didn't do. Yeah. Um, is there, is there any, uh, I, I remember you mentioned to me when I was talking to you about this outside of the podcast, that there might be like uh, uh, a benefit to the strain placed on your eyes if you're mm-hmm. staring at a screen for a long time. So maybe not necessarily like, hey, where are these blue light blockers and you're going to sleep 10 times better or longer, um, which I will say, this is just example of the placebo effect. I interviewed somebody who owns a, a blue light blocking glasses company and he also does some uh, like alcohol prevention, sober retreat stuff that was really cool that we talked about as well. Um, and he sent me some free glasses. So of course, I'm like, I'm going to wear them. And I swore I slept so much better when I was wearing those things. <laughs> and my wife gave me shit because I'm wearing these like dorky orange glasses every night. Uh, but I swear I slept better. And then what I noticed is when we moved, I forgot to pull them back out and I kept sleeping totally fine. So what had happened was I like seeing those on my nightstand gave me like the cue to be like, oh, wait, put my phone away. Like mm-hmm. put these on. It's time to wind down because I always go upstairs and change into like comfy clothes. And I'd see them, you know, and by then it's 7 p.m. starting to get dark. I'm like, oh, perfect. Um, And uh, and so like if I if I reflect back, it was almost like they gave me accountability to have a better nighttime routine is really what was going on. And that's something that sleep scientists I interviewed really swore by was that nighttime routine. It, it, I, I definitely agree there. And it it, this study would kind of indicate that a little bit. Right. It's like the first week it has a, a. 30 minute effect and you get a little bit of a sleep bump then the second week it kind of disappears and so maybe it is just them like adapting either to the blue light or the cues or whatever and saying okay we need to get get our stuff together we're going to study or you're an athlete and you get a pair of glasses and you're like okay let me try this for a couple weeks and just fix this thing for a while so yeah i don't know it it it, there are a lot of cool designs that could be done where you like give people glasses and then you take them away you give them you know stuff like that. Um, and as far as the strain on the eyes, is there? Oh yeah. Yeah. So that is, that evidence is pretty firm. Like all the studies I've looked at in the realm of eye strain, they really do help with eye strain, like not, and that's as little as like wearing them for two hours. Um, so I think the studies range from like two to 10 hours, which is, you know, like typical work day, I guess. Um, so yeah, I would I would say if you ask me, do they help eye strain? I'd say yes. Ask me if they help sleep. I'm like maybe. So what are the consequences of eye strain? So is, are we just talking like frequent headaches? Are we talking lack of concentration? Like what what happens if you have strain in your eyes? Yeah, so it's mostly most people complain about like blurry blurry vision, right? You stare at the screen too long, you're like, oh, your eyes start uh, watering. Yeah. Um, you can get dry eyes. Headaches are very common. Um, not like a super duper eye physio, physio person, but those are the general things that, that I've heard of and have kind of read about. Okay. Yeah. That's typically the only time I wear them now is like, if I know I'm going to be sitting in front of the computer for a long time, um, I'll rock the clear ones. So I don't have like change 
everything becomes orange, obviously, but um, yeah. at least it's somewhat of a dimmer to that blue light. Um, cool. I have, I have a couple random questions that kind of relate, kind of don't, but do you, do you have anything left you want to point out on the study before, before I ask those and we move on? Um, no, I don't really think so. There, there is one, so in, in the realm of the study, there is one meta-analysis that kind of looks at blue light and all of the things you would care about. So eye strain, sleep, things like that. And it's really mixed. Um, there's no like definite, like, yes, the blue light definitely helps with all of these things, um, except for eye strain. So I, I don't know. I, I'm so hopeful. And then I get so sad. <laughs> that's, that's what I was saying. Like, I want to hack so yeah. bad, <laughs> but there's really no hacks. Um, okay, cool. So, I mean, uh, the conclusion on this one is basically like, there might be a benefit from an eye strain perspective. So if you're staring at a screen for a long time, you might want to wear them. But um, other than that, the not only are the results short lived, but they're not that significant. So yeah. you're probably not going to notice much. And some of these blue light boxes are hundred dollars or more. So this oh, is, man. you know, they, I mean, you can get, so like, and you can get cheap ones on Amazon, but I've gotten cheap ones on Amazon. And then I used uh they have these things online that you can do like a, you can test the glasses. So there's like this color scale and without them, I can see all the colors. When you put them on, it should block out some of the colors because some of the colors are made through blue light. Um, and I've used really nice ones and it does block them out. Granted, obviously it's not doing too much for me sleep-wise. And I put the cheap ones on and it doesn't do shit. <laughs> it's just orange glasses. <laughs> so you gotta be careful. And if you're gonna get blue lights, you actually do have to actually spend a little bit of money, but it might not be something you really need. Um, yeah the um there's some so part of my instagram this week is is looking at the glasses and there's a couple studies that compare glasses and like some of these glasses are only blocking 15 percent of blue light and you're like okay well that's that's probably not enough to do much so like you said you, you probably need some glasses that actually block blue light. yeah um one of the questions i had is for uh, night shift workers so mm -hmm. Do you think any results in this would be different if we were using it with them? Because I got to imagine their social jet lag is all screwed up. Like it's on a whole nother level because of those swings. Um, and if not, what are, what are your recommendations that you usually tell people? Because it, it's a very touchy subject because a lot of times people say like, well, what do I do if this? I'm like, well, get a new job. <laughs> and they're like, okay, that's an yeah. option. I'm like, okay, well, if that's not an option, um, I mean – one, stop training so hard on the days you have 10 hour shifts, three days in a row, like take those as rest days. Like, you know, we got to focus on nutrition. You might need to implement some intermittent fasting, just not really intermittent fasting, but more like having set meal times to keep your circadian yeah. rhythm in check. Um, but do you have any, uh, any recommendations? Have you dug into the research on this at all? Not too much. Um, so I, I honestly like tell people if you're working night shift, you want to do everything within your power to get off of it um, relatively quickly. Uh, you know, like a year or two of night shifts, not terrible, but when you go past that, um, you look at any like disease outcome and it is terrible. Like these people are just prone to everything. Um, but, you know, like you said, uh, exercise seems to help a little bit, uh, kind of regulate your chronobiology. Uh, nutrition, you know, timing it as needed. Um, I haven't dug into chrononutrition a whole lot, but I think, I think Strong Breast Science has a good chrononutrition article. Um, and then... Um, I also boop. interviewed Danny Lennon on here 
for oh, okay. nutrition right after the Stronger by Science article came out. So we can link the article from them in our interview with him. Really good podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I like Danny a lot. Um, but in the realm of uh, night shift work, like I would say do everything, even if you just get like a placebo or like I would actually recommend, hey, you know, we're not sure if we like blocking glasses work, but for you, it's worth the hundred dollars because for the glasses, because it's, it's a risk. Right. But for like me, I'm like, eh, my sleep's pretty good anyway. I probably don't need them. Um, so yeah, I think when you get into extreme situations and night shift working is definitely one of them, uh, you have to kind of bend the rules a little bit. Yeah. And I'm sure this study would be, I mean, maybe it wouldn't be super significant if that was the case, but I'm sure if they took this study and did it with all people who work swing shifts or night shifts or long hours like that, um, maybe it would have made a slight difference, you know, because yeah. I know for, so my sister-in-law and her husband, which would be my brother-in-law-in-law, because it's my wife's brother-in-law, but um, they're both police officers and they were crazy shifts. Like I, we were there visiting them and I think one of them went to bed at like uh, five in the morning. Like she stayed up way past us. Cause she was like, well, I don't work tomorrow, but if I don't stick to my sleep schedule, I'm all screwed up. So she stayed up till five, went to sleep and then woke up at like noon. Right. And like was with us. So it was like really weird, but that's like the only way to keep it regulated. So I can imagine like for her, maybe using them might be beneficial, but um, yeah, it's worth trying like that. That's in those situations, it's worth trying a little bit outside of scientific uh, means, I yeah. would say. Um, I think I've asked you this before, but uh, how do you how do you like decide what you're going to dig into research wise? You know, like, do you do you like say like, all right, like I'm going to, you know, every day I pick something that I'm going to do or like for the next month, I'm gonna really going to focus on all the research on this. Like just because I've yet to stump you with anything on the podcast or off, like anytime I ask you something, it seems like you have some kind of study to back it up or you know something about it, which is just mind blowing. Yeah. So I learned early in my PhD, the, the person who knows the literature the best always wins the arguments, no matter who <laughs> you're arguing with. And it was taught to me by like the senior postdoc. And she's like, no, if you just read and memorize stuff, you can like always know most stuff. Um, but I, so I, I write a lot, right? Uh, we do podcasts, we do blogs. The, the coaches are constantly asking me some, something, right? I've got like two emails from coaches in my inbox now and respond to. Um, I do my own research, which is not within the realm of like sleep or blue light blocking glasses or, or really even nutrition for that matter. I've got a couple of nutrition studies. Uh, so I, get, I just get exposed to a lot of different things, which makes me read a lot. I probably read, I don't know, three studies a day. Are you allowed to talk about the studies that you do because of the circumstance you do them in? Nope. <laughs> so those kind of studies don't get released into like PubMed or ResearchGate or anything like that? No, which is kind of unfortunate if, you know, you're looking to do stuff later because you have like no record of, hey, I did this cool thing that I can't talk mm, about. Yeah. Um, I read a study about, uh, this is a long time ago, um, and it popped up on the Journal of International sports science nutrition j-i-s-s-n um and that was it's funny you talked about like you just kind of have this routine like i had this routine where like almost every morning i would open like if mass had a new one i would open that and then i'd go through all those um and then i would go to j-i-s-s-n because it's just a database full of studies and interpretations and and um i really like when they have people that come and do i can't remember what it's called but it would be like a meal timing 
and it's like all these people come in and kind of give their opinion of the research that they've seen over the years. It's not a meta analysis, but I can't remember what it's called. Um, yeah, it's just like a, it's almost like an opinion of experts. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I used to just dump through it like every morning. I just click it and like, all right, I'm gonna pick one. I'm gonna read through it. And uh, I read one about nootropics, and I I want to say it was there's the participants of the study were uh, snipers. I don't know if it was from the army or if it was like competition sniping. Like, mm-hmm. um, but uh, they it was like basically placebo, nothing, or nootropic supplement. And the nootropic was actually on its alpha brain which is a well-known company. So I don't know if they funded the study and then it kind of bit them in the ass because there was no significant changes whatsoever in anything. Which to me, I was reading, I'm like, man, like that's crazy because nootropics is a big field. That's a big brand. Um, I do take nootropics and I have them sitting on the counter right here. And uh, I feel like they helped me. So I'm like, okay, was it just a bad brand or are these snipers so elite? that they would need something more powerful than that to change their focus. Cause their focus is so dialed in already. Like, um, yeah, but yeah it's Ooh. crazy. I don't know if you have opinions on that, but, um, the, they, they are elite athletes. I will say that I, I've always been kind of skeptical, but now I would tell you straight up any like Ranger special ops, anybody like they are elite athletes. Um, so they need things that normal people don't need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I, uh, when I was visiting family the, the other weekend, he, he used to do, um, I don't know what they're called, but they're like, they put out forest fires. Like they're the guys that like are in the like mountains of the forest when the fires are going up and they're like in the trenches, put like putting them out. And it's like brutal. In fact, uh, what's the guy that does, uh, he has the book can't hurt me. He was on Joe Rogan a bunch. Oh man. I don't, He's like a I'm... Navy seal. And he also like oh. and everything super hardcore i think he ja, was it jocko willick is that no, jocko is is a badass um, okay but yeah he is i've read his books yeah, yeah. um it is david goggins okay so, um david goggins does that for fun he volunteers <laughs> like literally Jeez. he goes like i heard joe talking about this he literally like in the summer because he's bored will go volunteer for that and it's like one of the most dangerous unrecognized professions that you can do but uh, my brother-in-law did that. He's, he's part SWAT. He's the sheriff and all that stuff. And when I was shooting with him, like seeing him talk about it and, and handle the gun and do all these things is just wild. And like you said, like people don't consider that an athlete, but he's definitely an elite athlete. Like it's, it's yeah. kind of crazy how they approach things. It's, it's cool. It's, a, it's, it's not what you would normally think of, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So uh, next study is still on the train of sleep. Um, which uh, I'm excited to get in this one because I think it's the opposite of what most people think about. Usually people are thinking, how does sleep uh, affect training? Not how does training affect sleep? And, uh, and I think this can kind of pigeonhole into a couple conversations around nutrition as well, but um, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so this is a, a pretty simple study. Um, this is a randomized crossover. So basically you do one thing and then hopefully you have like a washout period and you do the other thing. Um, in this case, it was either training to failure or not training to failure and not training to failure was with two reps in reserve. So, you know, not, not a hard workout, but not an easy one. Uh, and what they did was four sets of 10 of 75% of one RM, um, which is kind of interesting when you mix one RM work with RPE work, cause they don't always match up, but again, failure or non-failure, failure, bench press 
and half squats, not full squats, half squats. Uh, and then, so they had a workout and then they measured sleep parameters. So they did sleep quality, um, actigraphy, they did heart rate variability, which is just the time between heartbeats. Um, and I will have to do a HRV study at some point in our, our series, because it's super cool. Uh, and then they, next day, they did a one RM of bench press and half squat. Um, so, which is kind of weird, but anyway. What half squat? Uh, probably because it's easier um, to do and load. do in a study. Yeah, and load. Like you don't have to worry. There's there's le- there's a lot less risk mm. put that way, and it yeah. does transfer really well for athletes. Yeah, and I guess too, like you got to think about if we have a bunch of people and half of them can squat really, really well as grass and half of them can't, it kind of throws another variable into the study. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, kind of, kind of weird, but a lot of people do it. Uh, and basically what they found was no differences between failure and non-failure on anything sleep related or HRV related. Um, as you can kind of imagine, if you went to failure and the next day you won RM'd, you did worse um, than like your previous one RM compared to the non-failure group. So that was kind of the like duh finding of the study. But those are, you know, those are always needed, just proof of concept is what we call them. And so when I picked this study, I was really excited and I read it and I analyzed it and I was like, this is lame. Uh, but it's really important that we cover studies that don't have like what we call significant findings, right? Because uh, this is called publication bias or the file drawer effect where a lot of um, journals won't publish as much stuff. If they're getting better, a lot of journals are getting better, but they won't publish as much findings that are non-significant. So you compare two things and they're not different. Whoop-de-doo, right? But then you have like grad students and young investigators and whoever doing studies that have already been done and finding like, Hey, there's no difference, but nobody ever published it. So we repeated it and now we're not going to publish it either. So somebody else is going to do it again. So it's a huge waste of time and resources. Um, but that's just my little rant on publication bias. I think there's, there's a lot of, I mean, a study has like a marketability to it too, you know? So like mm-hmm. when we consider headlines of podcasts, of blogs, of articles, of, of journals, like, everybody's fighting for attention in today's age because of social media and marketing and business and everything. Um, and this is something I study quite a bit because it's my job to know how to get people's attention. But um, yeah. I think that's a thing is like, you know, who's the best publication, who's the best research view. Like we have to pick studies that intrigue people, you know? Um, so mm-hmm. if there's not a significant difference, and this is why, like I always say, um, the more science I learn and the more I talk to people like you, the more I realize how simple body composition changes really are right because it really comes down to like caloric balance like keto came out and it was like this huge thing and then after like a few years of actual studies coming out oh it's just calorie deficit intermittent fasting oh just calorie deficit right like paleo oh just calorie deficit and there's no like yeah you got food intolerances sometimes you might have a upset stomach but like it's not like none of these things are hyped up as much as they that, that we thought and, and part of it is because the marketability of extremism is huge you know if i can make a claim that is like kind of scary or triggers you like you're going to read yeah. it so um which is why the title of this podcast will probably be blue light blockers or bullshit 
and people. <laughs> I, I um, any writing I've ever done, I always suck at that part, like the headline part. I'm just like, I can't, I can't do it. I'm just terrible. I just, somebody else take care of it for me. That's why I still always have the final uh, edit on any blog that goes out on the website, <laughs> no matter who nice. writes it, because um, it's something I've studied. I've studied copywriting a lot and, and yeah. powerful headlines and I've done courses on it. And, and, and it's actually funny, man. Like it's, it's as you grow um, in your profession, you, you, your, your interests kind of change depending on mm-hmm. where your role goes. And I think like, mine more than a lot of people, my role has changed so much over the years because, you know, it was like, I was just a trainer and then I was a trainer and nutritionist and then I was more of a nutritionist. And then I was, uh, quote unquote, trying to be an influencer, you know? And, and I mean that in the sense of like, I'm trying to influence people through my content, not that I'm like an Instagram yeah. influencer. Um, and, and like an interpreter of science because now I have a podcast and I have to explain it. And then I'm, uh, coaching coaches and then I'm leading a team of coaches. You know what I mean? So like these things change. Yeah. And I've noticed that like, as that's happened, I've studied more and more of this kind of stuff because it's more and more important and it's more and more interesting to me as that becomes more of my duty. Um, so like the science of words is like the most fascinating thing to me. I love it, but I'm also into weird things. So people might not get excited about <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's super, it's from a business perspective, you know, it's super important. Um, yeah. I think it's cool. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Let's see. So yeah, the study is, they didn't really find anything. Um, but there are a number of other studies that this kind of links back to that say, you know, acutely, like acutely exercise, uh, generally helps sleep, like helps people sleep better. It's probably cause you're tired, right? Especially if you're not used to exercising. Um, so that's kind of the, the take home is the, the sword is, double-edged where like sleeping good helps your exercise but exercising good also helps your sleep it's like a continuous cycle um is there any differences with morning versus night training sessions i always get the question like what's the best time to train um and the only literature i really know about this is for muscle growth i want to say and i think they said like between 3 to 5 p.m because it's an afternoon um oh man yeah but i know I've made recommendations to people like that train. I mean, shit, when I was going to school, interning and working job, I would train at like 10 PM. Like I'd literally mm-hmm. like after my whole day, I train, finish at like midnight, eat a meal, pass out, try to sleep in as long as I could. Um, and a lot of people who train late, like they have insomnia, they can't sleep. And, and I'm like, Hey, we should probably tone down because you're drinking caffeine or you're amping up your nervous system while you train. Then you try to go to bed. I never had that issue, but I was also 19 when I was doing that. So I mean, yeah, I could just fall asleep like a rock, but um, is there any evidence to suggest one way or the other? So a, up until a couple of years ago, there was, and it was working out in the afternoon, like you worked out better. It just generally helped everything. Um, but then people got a little smarter and realized that you adapt to whenever you work out. So like if you, I don't know what time you work out, but let's say you started working out at 6 a.m. Like the first month even might suck. But after that, you would be able to perform just as well as you had before if you worked out at like 3 or 5 p.m. or whatever. Um, so there was a lot of science around like, oh, you're primed to do better in the afternoons. It'll just help um, as long as you can manage caffeine, which is linked to sleep. Um, but then it's kind of like, oh, no, you, would, you kind of adapt. And it doesn't really matter for long-term performance. 
Um, I think when we talk about stimulants and sleep and stuff, yeah, you have to be really careful with that. Well, I'm sure if they took people who have, who aren't training at all and put them in the study, they probably would adapt quicker to the afternoon training because it's not much of an adaptation. They've been awake for eight hours. They've had three meals. They've been moving their joints. You know what I mean? Um, but is there any reason, like, cause I've heard people make the argument of like, well, wouldn't want to want to train in the morning because cortisol kind of wakes us up. You know, morning is when we have that big cortisol spike cortisol kind of puts you in that fight or flight. It might be good to use that for strength training. Um, and then you're not, you know, cortisol goes up and then it calms down throughout the day and then you're spiking it again as you train, which I don't know if it's to that effect, but, um, is there any reason that that would be beneficial maybe in special populations where stress or cortisol issues are prevalent? Yeah. I mean, uh, I would be, I'd be kind of hesitant to go down that road. Cause I mean, cortisol spikes, but it's, it's not like mm, super duper high. Uh, maybe, maybe, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like, eh, probably not. <laughs> I think it depends on that training too. You know, I know. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you're doing like a really good, just basic strength bodybuilding program, you probably don't have anything to worry about. Um, you know, but I've worked with people who have high stress lifestyles and they're doing like six days a week of like really intense CrossFit, like they're CrossFitters, but they're not just like the recreational, like they're actually doing local competitions and they're, they're pretty badass. Yeah. And in those cases, I do have the discussion of like, Hey, let's have carbs in every meal. Let's make sure that you're having like a, a post-workout shake with carbs in it right away. Cause we just want to like keep calming you down because you're always ramped up. Um, and there's people that that's just their personality, you know, like they're go, go, go. And they're nonstop and they're hyped up all the time. And I think that can cause burnout after a while if you're not careful. Yeah, I, I I definitely agree with that. Um, and I don't I don't know that there's a whole lot like even of research to kind of link like high cortisol with stress response with training adaptations. Like it's just not. I just think there's not that much out there. So there's definitely a gap there. Yeah, it'd be a hard study to even do honestly because you got to find the right people. Um, yeah the studies where you have to screen before you do anything so like a lot of the genetic studies um like say we're doing a caffeine metabolism study like we have to screen your genetics and then like do the study take longer and are harder to kind of get people for mm. so um one question i do have on this one that isn't related to training um is just nutrition's effect like i think it's it's something that we might as well bring up since we're talking about sleep so much in this podcast, but is there, um, you know, I've heard multiple things. I've heard that it doesn't matter. Like if you're in a deficit for a long time, you're going to probably start having sleep issues, but I don't necessarily think that's about nutrient timing or anything like that. You just, you're fatigued from the diet, um, and stress response is going up. But, um, I've heard people make the claim of, which would make sense. Like, you know, have most of your carbs in the afternoon because, you know, you get that like kind of carb coma, that sleepy effect when, you shift into parasympathetic mode. Um, I've also heard people say the opposite. Um, and I, th- I want to say there was research that came out not too long ago that I don't know if it was Greg Potter or the other lady I interviewed that actually brought up saying the complete opposite, like having carbs in the morning and then actually having a higher protein fat meal before bed to help sleep. But do you know of any recommendations for macros or meal timing or really anything, or is it kind of just up in the air right now? So it's, it's both ways. And I think from my reading of the literature, both ways are correct. You just have to determine, and this is a super easy experiment to do on yourself, 
if carbs like promote sleep or if they make you stay up or kind of like you can't sleep with them, which is, I mean, most people probably already know that. Like I know that if I have a bunch of carbs, um, you know, I'm going to get a little sleepy and that's okay. So I can use to my advantage. Whereas some people may be the opposite. And then they would say, all right, well, maybe high fat helps me sleep. Um, or maybe there's like no effect at all. Um, so what, that's something you could totally test with you or your clients or whoever, and whichever way helps I would go with. That makes sense. It's pretty individual. Yeah. Um, and I'm the same way. Like I have a, one of my bigger carb meals at night and it knocks me out. Like I'm, I'm yeah. down like a rock, but then again, like I basically eat carbs in every single meal. So yeah. <laughs> it's hard for me to even make a decision of like, which one's better for me. So until I get deep into this cut, I won't be able to say. Yeah. I'm, I'm settling right around like 2,500 calories and it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. This has been good, man. Do you have anything else to add on either of these studies? Um, no, but I did, I do want to touch on chronotypes because the first study adjusted for chronotypes. Okay. Um, so chronotypes are, you're one of three things. You're either a morning lark, you're kind of intermediate, which is 80% of the population, 70, 80% of the population, or you're a night owl. So morning likes like to get up early and go to bed early. Night owls are the opposite. Uh, and the people in between are kind of flexible, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, but I remember in college, I was talking to some, one of my clients at the time, and he was like, yeah, I always feel bad when I sleep in and you know, I want to get up early and be like a go-getter. And like our society is primed for like starting early is good and staying up late. Honestly, just like sleeping less is good, which is not true. Um, but I had to tell him, I made him take the quiz that I link actually in the blog. Um, it's like auto MEQ. You can figure out your chronotype if you answer correctly or honestly. Um, but you can adapt to your chronotype such that maybe you wake up a little bit later and it's okay because you feel better. Like don't feel bad about adjusting to your chronotype or adjusting your sleep schedule. Um, especially if it's just a couple hours. So I just wanted to touch on that because people ask me about chronotypes occasionally. Um, so you can figure out what yours is in the blog, but then don't be afraid to adjust to it if you can, especially like now everybody's working from home. Mm -hmm. I think it's always important to tell people like there's all these strategies and methods and, and things that you can dig into and pathways but it's always important to just constantly kind of keep your finger on that pulse of awareness just to make mm -hmm. sure you're looking at your body because i've seen people have results that wouldn't make sense because it's not what i would predict you know and then i've have other people that are extremely predictable and it's exactly what i thought would happen so it's important to to do that but i'll link uh, obviously the blog will be linked in this podcast so if you're interested in um, reading uh, Brandon's interpretations. You can jump on that. That's where all the graphs and all the links are. Um, and I'll also drop a link in the show notes of uh, Danny's episode, Chrono Nutrition, Danny's article on Stronger by Science on Chrono Nutrition, and then the test that you just mentioned. I'll put that in the show notes for you guys as well. Um, and I recommend checking them all out. It's a really interesting topic. And I think uh, if you're a coach or a trainer, you're just a nutrition geek, it's, it's a fun one to dive into because it as you dig into chrononutrition, you start almost feeling like it's defying the rule of calories in versus calories out. And it's not completely, but you know, for a long time, it was like nutrient timing does not matter. Just hit your calories. Right. And then this comes out and you're like, or does it matter? And then it kind of throws in that wrench. But again, I think this is one of those things too, where like if, you, if you're obese, have 
never tracked macros, you have no good habits, like don't worry about chronic nutrition. It's not going to work. But if you're an elite right. uh, nutrition and you've been dieting and you're, you're focusing on this stuff, I think it's, it's worth paying attention to or, or considering. Or if it works with your schedule, you know, one of the interesting things, the last thing I'll say was that when they were talking about time-restricted feeding um, in the article, and me and Danny talked about it on the podcast, was that most people think of time-restricted feeding as an intermittent fasting protocol where I, I skip breakfast, right? And then I have most of my calories in the afternoon, but they actually kind of flipped it around and these, these research studies showed a bigger benefit to waking up, eating your biggest meal of the day, and having smaller meals throughout the day, and then stopping your eating at around 5 or 6 p.m., which also goes against the whole thing of it, like eating before bed causes you to gain fat, which was like a myth. And then people defied that and were like, no, it doesn't matter. And this comes, so it's like, it's one of those ones that's like, well, maybe and they kind of, they're poking the bear. So um, if you're into this stuff, I, I do recommend checking it out. It's a, it's a fun topic. Yeah. Uh, research is always evolving, right? So like we may figure something out in a couple of years that kind of starts to tilt what we believe or what we think. And you just have to kind of be open to when that happens. Like, oh, okay. Yeah exactly um well all right man we'll wrap it up there thank you again for being on the podcast i'm gonna link brandon's instagram uh the blog all the content i mentioned in the description so go check those out go give him a follow he did a full series on these topics as well on his instagram um which is basically like a weekly thing right yeah i pick up a topic each week basically yeah so if you want a lot of informative infographics go check that out there um and until next time before i let you go i just want to say thanks I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.